Steve, it's Friday. Not that it kind of matters because every day feels the same right now, but it's Friday. <laughs> yeah, it's funny. My, my daughter's just starting to understand days. So she, this morning she asked me, what day is it? And I'm like, it's Friday. She's like, it's Friday. <laughs> <laughs> Completely, totally irrelevant to her, but yeah. she was excited about that it was Friday. Yeah, yeah. That's funny. Um, yeah, that's why it's crazy, man. Everything's just uh, one big, long blur. I think... Um, I think myself, my family, a lot of other people I've talked to, everyone's kind of adjusted to this new normal of kind of staying at home and whatnot. And yeah, it's going to be uh, interesting to kind of get back to regular life in the future whenever that happens. Mm-hmm. Or maybe we'll just keep podcasting every day for like eternity. I don't know. Eternity. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Are you going to get out for anything this weekend or sneak away? Uh, no, no plans. Um, definitely bears open here. I still need to go... Uh, I swapped out scopes on my rifle, so I need to go reside in as soon as I, I'll probably try to accomplish that this weekend, and then, yeah, maybe I'll sneak out one day next week or something and go go kill a big old bear. You usually don't go out necessarily right at the opener of the season. You like to wait a little bit anyway, right? Yeah, normally I have a pretty good idea of where the snow line's at, and to be honest with you, I haven't been paying attention. But in general, like my f- two or three favorite spots, you really they're not that productive. April fifteenth, there's still too much snow. Um, so yeah, I, I like to, you know, end of April, early May is, is like my favorite time where we kind of talked about on a previous podcast there of, uh, Lee, you know, the grass, the hillsides are starting to green up, but the, the leaves are still on the bushes and stuff still aren't popping yet. So it's really easy to spot bears when they're up and moving. Um, yeah, it's been definitely my favorite time. You go later in May into June, it, it gets a lot, lot harder. Speaking of shooting, I actually shot some last night. Uh, it was gorgeous yesterday and I can... I can shoot uh, just relatively short distance, like 100 yards at my parents' place. And I did that barrel swap a couple weeks ago, so I'm just breaking that in. Um, I think I have all of maybe 25 rounds down it now, but shot a little bit last night. And, dude, that rifle is so crazy sweet. I'm so excited with how it turned out. Nice. What kind of uh, groups are you getting initially? So, yeah, I'm just doing break-in. Like I said, I was um, not shooting any fancy ammo. It was just like some of that. It's a uh, Fiatchi, pretty basic stuff with like a FMJ in it. Actually, no, it has a Sierra Match King bullet in it, but um, pretty cheap ammo. And then I was not even so much trying to shoot for groups, but it ended up like it's grouping well, actually. I'll have to send you some photos, but um, I haven't measured them yet because I'm not like a group mm. shooter, but I was prone shooting off the bipod and like I had one group. Um, actually, the last group I shot, I kind of tried to shoot a group and it was... It was four shots, like literally under my thumb nail. Wow. Like it was, yeah, it's impressive. And I guess I, you know, um, I'd always shot that rifle. You know, I've had the stock for a year plus. I was always really comfortable with it. I love the feel of the stock. Like there's a lot that's not new to it, but obviously breaking in the barrel, I think I'm already getting much better performance and time will tell there. But the other thing is with that barrel swap, I put the um the break on there from Thunderbeast for my suppressor and I chose that as the suppressor mount not so much as a strict muzzle break but I'm actually really surprised with how well that break performs um on its own cuz I don't have my suppressor yet I'm still waiting for approval so shooting with the break which again is the mount for the suppressor I'm just shocked at how well it performs cuz it's not again specifically designed to be a standalone break um but man it tames that rifle down it has like 
much, like much different recoil profile for sure. Like it doesn't have the crazy rise. It's like a small hop and you're right back on target. So, um, for hunting specifically, it's, it's nice already. And I can't, you know, once the can's on it, it's probably going to be even better. That's awesome, man. Yeah. It's, uh, I, I know I got that Thunder Beast uh, sitting in jail or whatever right now waiting for this stuff, and who the heck knows how long that's going to take to come through with everything going on, but yeah. hopefully sooner than later and slap that thing on and go, shoot, I'm excited. Let's move from rifles to bows. We had a good question on bow tuning. Um, guy wrote in and said, what type of bow tuning do you guys do, such as paper tuning, bear shaft tuning, broadhead tuning, French tuning, etc.? And do you have your own bow press or do you have a bow shop do that work for you? So tuning, I don't know, for me, I will get into it, but I'm here curious to hear your thoughts, Steve. For me, it is going to depend on, is this a brand new bow setup? Is it a new arrow setup? Like, what are the goals in my tuning? Um, that's how I tend to approach things. But do you follow the same process all the time, Steve, when variables change? Um, yeah, pretty much at this point. I mean, it's, it's so simplified. Um, we'll just start with get a new bow. Uh, I simply just uh, quickly check cam timing, uh, jaw length, all that stuff. Uh, I, you know, obviously, you know, operated an archery shop out of my garage for years, so I've got all the tools um, and, and do it myself. It, it's not super complicated stuff. It's pretty easy. You just got to dive into it. But if you want to get the most out of your bow, you either need an awesome archery shop um, that lets you go down there and just like hang out for, you know, four to eight hours. I mean, tuning a bow doesn't happen quickly, uh, typically. Right. Um, so you, you need to have a great shop. If you don't have a great shop close by you, I would highly encourage you to just go get a press and start learning this stuff on your own. Um, so yeah, jumping back, get a new bow. I just kind of check everything, make sure it's close. And then I slap a slap a D loop on there, throw the peep in, put the rest on, and then I'll shoot that for a couple weeks uh, to let everything settle in, uh, the string to stretch a little bit, um, the serving to kind of settle into the grooves of the cams, just let, let the bow, you know, just like you're breaking in that, the barrel on that gun right now. I think there's a little bit, you know, um, of an advantage to just not like, don't just slap it on and, and tune it right away. Cause things will change ever so slightly. It's gotten a lot better, you know, 10 to 20 years ago, string materials weren't as good. Uh, so that you'd see a lot more, um, basically stretch and, and things would change, but, uh, still, I think it's worthwhile just, uh, getting a broken, you know, whether that's 50 shots or 200 shots, um, you know, I don't know if it necessarily matters. Uh, and then if it's like, <laughs> it sounds crazy, but, um, I'll even like leave my bow out in my truck if it's like mildly warm, just to kind of like heat everything up. I know it's someone's gonna think i'm crazy because uh, you, you don't want to leave your bow in your truck when it's like 90 degrees you know and it gets super super hot in there but say i'm like tuning in january or february and everything's just cold all the time i've like, like specifically just like left my bow in the truck just to kind of heat it up and um yeah I, don't, I have no uh data to back up that it's where it works but it's just something stupid i do um and then uh and then yeah and then jump into tuning and then like we've talked about in, in previous TSSs there of like find one system uh, that works, one arrow that the spine matches up and uh, that you're, you want to hunt, you know, all the stuff you're going to hunt that year with and shoot 3D and whatever, like highly uh, encourage just like getting a system and getting it dialed in and not messing with it. Um, so then, yeah, then it just goes into the tuning process and that can be um, 
very, very complicated if you want it to be. Sometimes you get lucky. Everything lines up. You're, you got the right spine. Uh, the more you do it, the, the, the more you learn. And then every once in a while you get caught by surprise. But in general, I can know like, all right, I shot, you know, this Hoyt bow last year and this arrow spine worked. And this new bow I just got is uh, similar, you know, specs, similar speed, same draw length, same draw weight. So the spine should work with it. Like, you know, as you gain experience, you kind of speed up that process. If you're starting from scratch, you'll, you know, you'll, you might try a 400 spine arrow and find out that it doesn't work. And then you need to go to a 340 and find out you're overspined and you can definitely go back and forth on that a little bit. Um, but, uh, yeah, for me, as far as the actual tuning of the bow, I've used different methods over the years and really had great results with everything. Um, at the end of the day, all I care about is um, that I got field points and a good fixed blade broadhead. Um, I could shoot the two out to 70, 80 yards, and they basically, like the broadheads and field points, shoot and group together. That tells me everything is like perfect um you know if uh, your broadheads at 50 yards are hitting five inches right uh, something's going on could be the broadhead could be uh the, the bow could be the shooter something's wrong there so uh, to me that's always the end goal is just making sure that those two fly together and i've never had a scenario where the two grouped together at long range and like uh there was an issue going on right um if if the two are shooting together then you're pretty much dialed in uh, how you get to that point um, varies. I used to, um, for years, I shot elite bows, and I could just, I mean, I set up so many hundreds of them that it got to the point where I could just, like, dial in the cams, eyeball, center shot, knock height, and go shoot. And, like, more often than not, whenever you have to make an adjustment, you could just immediately shoot broadheads with your field points out to as far as you wanted to shoot. Um with switch to Hoyt four or five years ago, um, and I've I've gone back to paper tuning, um, and uh, and that works well for me. I, I shoot uh, basically at six feet and eighteen feet, um, and I'll shoot uh, kind of a not a complete bare shaft. I'll basically fletch an arrow and then cut off the the top portion of the vein so that the basically the base of the vein is still there just for the weight. Because if you know you take the veins off, you could be taking 15 to 20 grains off the back of the arrow, and that's going to affect your your dynamic spine uh, and and cause you to shoot a little differently. So uh, I just look for a perfect bullet hole with that um, with that arrow at six feet and 18 feet. Because sometimes you can get a perfect hole at six feet, step out to 18 feet, uh, and you're getting a you know a high left tear. Uh, and then sometimes you can get it good at 18 feet, but not at six feet. So something tells you something's going wonky there, right? Um, if you just do one distance, uh, that doesn't necessarily tell you anything. Um, and then I guess from, uh, just a random side note, no, nobody can tune your bow, but you like, just know that, right. You can't take it to an archery shop and say, here, paper tune this for me. Uh, it's completely and utterly worthless. So you have to be the one, you know, it has to be your hand on the riser, the torque that you apply, how you put pressure, the, um, with your nose on the side of the string, uh, what release you're shooting, all those things play play a role in this. So um, sometimes if you're struggling, you could hand it to somebody else uh, that um, has really good form and they shoot a perfect bullet hole. So it, it's a, a good indicator that like you're doing something wrong. Um, but definitely you have to be the one to tune your own bow. 
Yeah. Uh, long rant there. Botulin, you can really go down a wormhole, man. <laughs> it's, uh, For sure. Yeah. But so what, how about you? What's your preferred method right now? Yeah. I'd, I used to do way more on geeking out and like having this, <clears throat> excuse me, this long process and making sure everything was perfect along the way um, from paper tuning to then try to do bare shaft tuning and then looking at essentially like actual performance of what you were saying of grouping field points of broadheads that used to be kind of the last step which works right like if you go through all these tuning methods and verifications up front that's going to tend to lead you towards the end result you want Um, but in a way I almost cut out the work up front as much as possible and at least check that end result first to see how much work I need to do if that makes sense Um, and so like you were saying before you know, part of the process is just breaking in the bow a little bit, like letting the string stretch and settle and all that if it's a brand new bow. So for me, like you said, I'll just shoot it for a while. So I'll set center um, shot according to recommended spec, set knock height, um, and then just start shooting quite a bit. Along the way, as I'm just shooting and doing that quote-unquote break-in, I'll usually look at um, doing like a little bit of a walk-back tune just to see what things are looking like there. Um, some guys will, you know, walk back tune or guys will refer to like modified French tuning, whatever you want to do there. But I'm basically trying to look at center shot and kind of verifying that um, as I'm just doing a break in. And I won't make any major changes there. I'll just kind of tweak a little bit. Um, and from there, if things seem well and the bow's broken i've i've done that verification i'll just a lot of times screw on broadheads and see what things are looking like and that again that'll tell me how much work i have to do so if something's way off with broadheads and i'm finding that to correct that i have to make major adjustments and something's clearly out of tune and then i will kind of okay the bow's broken in clearly there's some sort of issue let's go back to the beginning let's paper tune let's do this but if i do all that that break in the walk back the broadhead shooting things are looking good like maybe i just don't have to do all that fine tuning if you will if i have the end result that i want if that makes sense yeah and you're you're same as me end result is broadheads grouping with field points yeah yeah i think it's too like you could there's entirely circumstances where you could have a perfectly paper tuned bow and then screw broadheads on and they shoot like crap right um and that that's obviously that's the end goal is to get our broadheads flying as best as possible and um sometimes that means you you get a slight tear in paper and there's some inconsistency there mm-hmm. um, but that's that's always the goal right you want that i've definitely noticed um in small sample size but in penetration on animals the the arrows that are just when broadheads on there and they're just flying like a laser you know no wobble no kick um i think they, they definitely just penetrate better as well um, that the, you know, when they hit that animal, everything's like perfectly perpendicular and just going right through it versus, you know, you're kind of getting a wobble on there. So it's, it's another benefit too of just having really, really well tuned bow. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's another thing going back to like those, just, just getting the bow roughly set up and shooting for a bit is just making sure you're not seeing other indicators or issues, right? So are you seeing any kick in the arrow? Are you noticing any fletching contact, be that from the bow or marking on your fletching? You could powder test. So there's a lot of things you can do kind of along the way. But yeah, I guess I guess where I've come full circle is in the past, what you were just describing, Steve, I've spent a lot of time getting perfect through paper. 
and then notice downrange issues and then trying to correct for that and then going back to paper and going, oh, now I have this tear, so let me fix the tear and trying to get both of those perfect when in reality I've just found that for whatever reason with some bow and arrow setups that my end result that we talked about that we want of field points and broadheads flying great sometimes results in not necessarily the perfect picture um, on a tear. Uh, yeah. So it just depends. Um, it, it, and it partially goes back to what you were saying too of, do you have experience with this bow, not necessarily that model, but with something similar? Or do you have experience with an arrow setup? And, you know, do you need to verify that the spine setup is good for this bow? Or do you have, again, previous experience that says this combination should work? And because of that previous experience, I'm kind of going to skip some of the the groundwork to kind of prove that, right? And just see, Mm -hmm. can I get closer to the end result with less work? Um, But again, if you're changing more variables, if you're changing a say a type of rest or you're going to a brand new bow with a different cam system or you're dramatically changing your arrow setup. If any of that's happening, I would say it is worth doing some of that paper tuning and, and more particular kind of verification, if you will, and not just trying to skip to the end result because you just want to see how things are reacting with each other. Yeah. Another thing that kind of comes into this both with tuning but shooting as well, I know we were chatting a little bit before the show about questions on different types of releases and that's i guess another thing to keep in mind is that can even affect your tune if you're trying to go back and forth a lot but you said that you had recently a question on wrist release versus thumb release etc what how did that question come up and what are your thoughts there oh yeah it was just last night on the the, the live podcast uh, youtube thing with born and raised and yeah a question came in on index finger versus thumb trigger and um you know my lot a lot of guys are shooting thumb triggers now you included um my take on it i shot i had target panic shot him shot a thumb trigger for a year and to me it's like the things that are good at the range like a single pin slider uh aren't necessarily like even though they may be more accurate it, it it's not necessarily the right thing to pack while you're out there hunting you know um so for me the, the biggest hang up was uh where the heck do you store that thing you know, because it's just not on your wrist and ready all the time when you when you're shooting a thumb trigger. Uh, you got it. You either clip it to your D loop and hope it doesn't fall off. You put it in a pocket, hope it doesn't fall out of your pocket. Uh, every like half the people I talked to had stories of um, like losing their, you know, having a having a backup in their lid of their pack and losing their uh, um, thumb trigger. You know, fall, fell out of their pocket or whatever. So that part of it to me is is a little scary. So I think if you can get, you know very good results with a uh, index tri- index finger release that's strapped to your wrist great uh if you just you know you shoot that much better with a thumb trigger than that problem of what the heck do you do with it while you're hunting uh you got to figure out how to solve yeah for me it i i guess going back years i started with an index and i was self-taught with a bow and probably didn't have great habits or technique to begin with and then dealt with target panic with an index and then went straight to trying to cure target panic just to was the main reason I went to a handheld and that was both a thumb trigger and a hinge. And it literally, I felt like I went from it. I just felt like it was a totally different thing. Shooting a bow for me with a handheld release, be it thumb trigger or hinge feels completely different than shooting a bow with an index, uh, 
release. Like the two, it's like saying to me, it's like, oh, we're gonna go to the store, and someone's driving a truck and someone's driving a motorcycle. Like, yeah, you're both using a vehicle, you're both going the same place, but like how you're getting there and what it feels like to do those two things are so different, even though they're the same, right? Yeah. Um. So for me, it's like, yeah, shooting shooting a bow with an index versus a handheld is like a truck and motorcycle, totally different experiences. And I just, I probably, I don't, I'd be curious now to kind of try to go back to an index, but like when I've tried quote unquote recently, which has probably honestly been two years, I just didn't like it. Um, yeah. So for me, I just, I do, I stick with a thumb trigger. Uh, I shoot with a hinge quite a bit, especially in the off season, I can execute execute those pretty similarly. Um, you know, I have my thumb trigger set up so that's super heavy, so I really am pulling through it, and not just like jerking it or punching it with my thumb or anything like that. Um, but yes, like you said, storage is probably the the main downside for me. Part of what's helped with that is making sure that I'm shooting um, something with a locking, like a fully locking jaw um, on the thumb trigger. So if I get it out, then I can lock it to my D loop. And in the chaos of things happening, like elk hunting and we're, you know, a setup moves or whatever, it's A, not going to fall off my bow, or B, you don't have to worry about taking it off my bow and then putting it in my pocket and then getting it back out. Like if there's any sort of encounter in the same way that you would knock an arrow, I can clip on my thumb release and it's secure. Outside of that, as you said, you know, on a seven day hunt, there's plenty of times it could disappear. Um, and thankfully it just hasn't, I will, especially on an extended hunt, either have a backup in the truck or sometimes have a backup in my pack, uh, which would be nice to not have to do. But again, theoretically, you could, you could theoretically have the same problem with an index. You know, if you're taking it off and you thought you secured it to your bow, but it wasn't buckled and that disappeared, whatever things can happen. Yeah. I have a like hard, it's either on my wrist or strapped to my riser. Like I, which is great. yeah, early on and, you know, first start bow hunting, you every once in a while you take it off to, you know, whatever and set it on the ground or, yeah, just kind of throw it loosely on top of your pack. Yeah, that I don't do that anymore. I'm very, very strict about uh, on my wrist or strapped to the riser. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, I actually keep my, so my thumb trigger, I will keep it, uh, I'm left-handed, so it's in my left hand and then I'll keep it in my left pocket of like my piranhas, just the front pocket. Um and in, in a kind of a good way, I can almost feel it there, um, especially the thumb trigger portion. A lot of times it's kind of poking me in the leg a little bit, not to where it's annoying, but I can like almost have that reassurance of, oh, I feel it there. It's still there. Um, and that pocket's secure enough where it's never coming out. So it's either coming out and clipping straight to my bow securely, or I'm pulling it off of my bow and putting it straight back in that pocket. Um, and then pretty much only time outside of that is you know going to bed at night and a lot of times i will even clip it to my bow then again so that as i grab my bow in the morning it's there and it's secure and it's it's easy to not miss that because it's kind of hanging and loose right so when i grab my bow the next morning it's there and it's dangling and it's annoying so i'll just take it straight back off and put it right back in my pocket so that's kind of how i the geeky way on how i manage it obviously there's a lot of guys who now, even with a thumb trigger or even a, with a hinge, um, either making their own lanyard for a wrist. There's models out there that now essentially it's a handheld release with some sort of wrist strap combination. 
I had played with those years ago. I haven't recently, but again, they just they bugged me. I didn't use them. Yeah, and that's such a large chunk of metal in your hands. You know, yeah. just clanking around. It just yeah, it's not practical for sure. And I think I like tree stand would be entirely different than a Western hunt as well, right? That was long and ranty, but hopefully maybe helpful. <laughs> it's, it's probably bows, man. You could really just freaking go down the wormhole. It's hard to simplify it, you know. I can yeah. I can relate because we're doing these uh, reloading podcasts, and I re- I haven't not it got into like reloading at all. So all this stuff just goes right over my head. Um, it's like until you're actually like dive in and, and can visualize and picture what they're talking about, you know, it's just like, huh? But yeah. So it's, uh, it's not as, it can be as complicated as you want, or it can be fairly simple on some of this stuff. So don't get distru- discouraged if you're listening and you, you're struggling to tune your bow, just keep at it. We had some good questions basically on, making the most use out of time, time management, uh, being short on time, but still, you know, trying to hunt effectively, that type of thing. Um, one of the ones that comes to mind, for example, a guy wrote in and basically said, you know, he has to work during his hunting season. He doesn't get these extended periods off, um, you know, for five days or seven days, struggles to get three days. So he does a lot of you know, short trips, he has one to two days, maybe a day and a half. And he's essentially getting in super late at night, camping at a trailhead, hiking in in the morning, or he's taking off from home at two in the morning and driving in and trying to hike to a glassing spot and and be there by first light. And then again, because he's in there for a day, if he's lucky two at a time, he has this like limited experience with the area. So even though he might have the opportunity to go to that area four weeks in a row if it's only for a day at a time he really struggles to figure out am i in a good spot should i stick with this spot more should i look for more new areas am i even doing the best thing to make the most use out of my time so that's one um and then just again multiple questions on guys saying i don't have as much time as i want to to hunt how can I make the most use of the little time I have? So I know that's very broad, Steve, but like, what are the things that come to mind that could help that guy with his scenario specifically about getting in and assessing areas or just in general about making the most use of your time? Yeah. Did you say elk or deer? Uh, he didn't, you know, he did say Oregon coast, um, him specifically. So he could be probably rosies. Yeah, probably rosies. Um, I think he's on the right track. Um, you know, obviously all the little things we talk, all the prep stuff you can do from home, do from home, you know, it's something, uh, pre-kids you could kind of just the night before do stuff. Now I'm like two weeks before hunts, I start chipping away at the little things I know I could do, you know, like ordering food and getting all my hunting clothes washed and sent free crap just to, uh, you know, all that stuff that you can do up front. Um, have, have your pack loaded and ready to go so that when you can go that there's no wasted time. Uh, as far as the, you know, hunting itself goes, a lot of that's just going to come down to some instinct, right? Um, if he's going to the same spot, you know, say he's bow hunting in September and he's going to the same spot every weekend, uh, and never seeing elk, clearly he needs to find a new spot. Um, if he's, you know, you're just going to have to get into the country and, you know, if you're seeing sign, if you're hearing them, if, you know, there's, there's fresh poop and rubs and everything, then, then stick with it. Um, I kind of have a, a basic 
rule is it it very you're almost always better to stay in the country and just kind of stick it out for a trip right so if say i i'm head in on um uh, a thursday it's a thursday through sunday hunt i get in there thursday afternoon don't see anything don't see anything friday morning then all of a sudden that temptation to like oh i could pack out of here could hike out could drive an hour down the road and go into another spot for for saturday and, and sunday morning um usually like the the energy expenditure and the time to do that doesn't like you know it doesn't add up uh like you're better off just to stay where you are and you know the the more time spent where the elk should be uh the more chance you're going to have to kill them you know you're not going to kill them driving down the road and and hiking out right um but again if he's going to the same spot every weekend and not like not having any close encounters you know by by the third weekend he better be looking somewhere new um you know you're gonna know if you're into elk or not it's it's gonna be pretty stinking obvious um so but yeah sometimes you know good hunters just have uh instinct right mm-hmm. uh, uh so much of that just comes down to uh like what you think and and what your instincts are telling you like this is a good spot they're here i'm gonna kill one eventually or you know what i'm just not feeling this and i do like a um, I do like a lot of visualization, you know, like it, it kind of sounds funny, but I try to like run through scenario. If I'm in country and I try to like run through scenarios, like, yeah, this, I could see this happening. I could, you know, I could see the elk over and, and that little, you know, ravine and that's going to be a good spot. And I kind of visualize walking in there and killing an elk. And sometimes like if you can't do that, you know, it's like a good example would be like a mule deer spot. Um, like, I'm just looking at the country and even if I'm not seeing a deer, right, it's like, God, I'm just like, even if I do see a deer, it's going to be really freaking hard to kill one here. Uh, you know, the, the terrain just doesn't lay out well, the, there's not a lot of cover to sneak in on something. Um, and, and then I was like, you know what, I'm going to find a new spot to go check out. So yeah, a lot of that will come down to instinct. Just, yeah. If you're not seeing the sign, if you're not into them, man, you need to be looking at new spots, but it sounds like he's doing everything right. Um, yeah, the, the biggest thing that I've, changed uh over the years um is just hunting sun up to sundown you know like we've we used to when i first started bow hunting was the very stereotypical get up two hours before light you know you you drive we had a base camp we drive down the road we'd park uh we'd hike in we'd hunt the morning you know sometime between 11 and 1 you got back to the truck you know the common knowledge was you know you don't kill animals in the middle of the day they're all bedded and impossible to find uh, so then you'd, you'd go back, you'd eat lunch, you'd take a nap, and then you'd go back out for an evening hunt. Um, and you know, little did we know we were missing probably some of the best hunting opportunity from 10 AM to 4 PM that there is. So, um, now it's just literally we, um, even if I'm, you know, day hunting and stuff like that, it's, it's very much you're out for the entire day. And when you do take breaks, you, you put yourself in position, um, you know, it's going to be based on the terrain, but if, if it's, uh, um, if you're in thick timber or something, you know, like, and I'm hungry, I'm going to have a snack. Well, I'm going to like hike for an extra 15 minutes to 30 minutes to find a good spot to sit down and eat that snack where there's a chance an elk walks by me, or, uh, there's a good glassing point a mile in front of me where I could sit on a, a rock point and, and glass a bunch of country. I'm going to hike over there and stop and eat. Right. So that I'm like, at least kind of multitasking and, and doing two things or 
even simply uh, in the Elkwoods, um, you know, getting to a spot where, say, it's like windy on one side of the ridge, um, but you could like poke your head, get over the top of it, or, or get behind some type of bluff where the wind's not hitting your ears. So you can just sit there and listen, right, while you eat your snack and listen for bugles. So there's all sorts of these little things you can do to optimize your time when you're out there hunting. Um, and, uh, yeah, don't don't take any naps. Naps used to be standard standard issue and don't, <laughs> I haven't done one in years. Uh, they're awesome, but, you know, you're not killing anything while you're sleeping. Yeah. Drop some bombs there, Steve. That's good little stuff, man. <laughs> yeah, you know, every once in a while. <laughs> you're on today. No, it was good. What you said about instincts is just really important, and especially for um, guys who are newer, and I'm saying that along with you, that's something that I've struggled with, can continue to struggle with, is, you know, you hear all of this information. Uh, obviously, you're listening to a podcast. You've probably listened to a bunch of podcasts. You've heard all kinds of information from different people about how things can work or should work or how to read sign, how to do this strategies, whatever. And all that can be running through your head. Um, and it's easy to like get caught in your head when you're out there, right? Like when things aren't going your way, now you're trying to assess what's the next best move. And part of that can be falling back on information you've heard, things you've read, things you've learned. But again, make sure you stay tuned into that inside part of you, that instinct, that hunter instinct. And um, if not outright follow that, at least make sure that that's as much a part of the equation as just being like analytical on what you've read, heard, et cetera. Um, You know, there's, I just think there's a lot to that. Then it's, it's easy to overlook it and it's easy to fall back to, well, they said it should be like this, but I feel like that. What should I do? You know? Yeah. Yeah. It's one thing that, um, I like the, uh, um, the Corey Jacobson born and raised strategy. Uh, when, when you're talking elk woods of just freaking covering country, um, it kind of is really, like for a new hunter, it really simplifies what to do. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, just keep freaking hiking and moving through the country as efficiently as possible. Use ridges, use benches, cover country until you find elk. And it, it like, it just makes things a lot more simple and less nuanced. Right. Um, just keep, you know, keep hiking, keep bugling and eventually you're going to stumble on an elk. Yeah. That's good. What you said too, about making those decisions on like how you're talking, for example, if, if you've put yourself in an area for the hunt, then really assessing is it worth it to move um and for you you do a lot of you know three four day hunts if it's a guy who has you know he's coming from out of state and he has eight days set aside that can be a different story you don't necessarily want to go well i picked this spot for this year i need to stay here it's a different story when you have eight days and you're at day three and you're not seeing sign and nothing's happened it it can be worth the effort to move you probably should move but at the same time, always assess that. I can even think back to um, you know, like the first bull that I killed in Colorado. We were having some action. Things were going pretty well. We were seeing sign. We had encounters. But at the same time, it got to be like day five or day, yeah, I, th- I think day five. And by the end of day five, we were like, should we move? Like, But we only had a couple days left. Um, 
And we just really questioned, is it with two days left, how much time and effort is it going to take to move at this point? Because we had already invested five days in this area. We ended up staying there and I ended up killing my bull at literally last light on the last day and it worked out that time. But at the same time, there's also been years where we have seven, eight days. And on the third day, again, by reading sign and off our instincts, we're like, this is not happening in this area. We are moving. So there's no one right answer, but definitely think through how much time you have, truly how much time and effort it's going to take to get you from where you are into new elk country. And then assess, is that a good use of my time? And again, that even goes back to how much time it takes is going to depend on so many things. <laughs> yeah. your, the plan you have ahead of time, do you know where you're going? Do you truly know where you're going and how to get there? Like everything from roads to access to whatever, it's going to depend on gear. How long does it take you to tear down camp and pack up and get to the truck and drive to wherever and then repeat that process. So that's why all those decisions on pre-season planning and even gear choices and all those strategy things make a huge, huge difference, again, on how much time you're actually spending in a place where you can actually fill a tag. Yeah, absolutely. One last question for today, kind of a, a random one that I don't have a solid answer to, but it's kind of interesting to think through. A guy basically wrote in and he's heard us talking about the value of having a communications method for us that's, um, you know, been a Garmin inReach. He was looking at an older inReach, um, a DeLorme inReach, which for context, DeLorme uh, was, I guess, bought by Garmin, right, Steve? Is that the case? Yeah, DeLorme created the inReach and then, and then, um, Garmin bought them out a couple of years into it. Yeah. Got it. Yeah. So he's basically asking, what are your opinions on buying a used alarm off of eBay versus buying a new Garmin device? Uh, it looks like it essentially could save them a hundred and my math is terrible. 170 bucks is what he's looking at difference. But then he also says, I realize you don't want to skimp on a life-saving device, but that $170 is a pretty good chunk of change. I could throw towards other hunting gear. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's a life-saving device if, the, if uh, you know, um, if the difference between him, yeah, like, you're better off. Uh, we're obviously huge, 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 huge fans of the inReach. It's changed how I hunt in, in so many great ways. Um, I would not skimp uh, unless it was literally the difference between, um, like, not getting it and getting it, right? Um, so if it's... Uh, if it's a decision on, I guess I don't know. I, I'm assuming, I think there's been some updates in GPS systems, the satellites, um, the last few years or like GPS plus GLONASS or something it's called. Um, I don't think that's in the older models. So I think you're going to get better, stronger signal technology always, is obviously changing rapidly. Um, and so I would, if you can get the latest and greatest model just to be the safest possible, um, but yeah, I, I guess I don't. I mean, I my old original Delorme reach I gave to my brother-in-law, and he's using it, and it works great for him. So uh, he's probably okay. But again, I you know that's not an area to skimp, as he implies in his email. So uh, if it means holding off on getting a, a new jacket for a year just to get the latest and greatest in reach, I probably would do that. You know. Yeah, I mean, there's a few ways to look at. It. I'd say if it's a matter of getting a used one versus nothing, then get the used one. 
Um, but like you said, if you can save elsewhere and then put it towards something that truly could be life-saving, um, it's obviously worth that investment. And then above all, in terms of just buying that used device, I would, you're not going to be able to call Delorm because they're not around anymore, but I would for sure contact Garmin um, specifically about their in-reach services to understand what are, are there any compatibility issues with this older, older device? And even if it um, can work for basic functions, can it perform all the fun? Like I'd really just want a clear picture from them about how supported is this device? How capable is this device? As you said, what has changed in the services that may not be available if you're on an older device? And I think the only and truly best way to get that information is to contact them directly. Yeah, uh, Garmin's a really solid company. You probably get a good answer from them. So, Steve, have a solid weekend, man. Listeners, hope you can get outside. Don't forget to send us any questions, topics, anything like that for future TSS episodes to podcasts at exomongear.com. Thank you guys, as always, for tuning in. Hope you're, hope that you're well in these crazy times. And, uh, yeah, appreciate the support. We'll talk to you soon.